Hey, what's good? This is Rich, and you're listening to Paychecks and Balances, where it's all about navigating work and money in pursuit of freedom. And beyond the podcast, be sure to check out the PMB blog at paychecksandbalances.com, where we've got new articles going up every week from a range of writers. And I also wanted to clarify on the spinoff show that I mentioned on last week's episode, I'm actually starting a quick live show on a platform called Fireside, where I and sometimes a guest will answer a listener or audience member's question or question. So kind of think of it like live coaching. Uh, This is very similar to what you might see on other drop-in audio platforms. This is not a come on and promote your stuff and be on the show type of thing. This is specifically to help and serve members of the P&B family. If you have a career or money question you'd like to submit for consideration, drop a note to info at paychecksandbalances.com and the team will be on the lookout. As for today's episode, I'm catching up with fellow Googler, certified financial planner, writer, and the author of Work Your Money, Not Your Life, How to Balance Your Career and Personal Finances to Get What You Want, Roger Ma. And we first connected at work and had such a good conversation that I asked him if we could move it over to the podcast, which he agreed to do, because when it comes to the intersection of work and money, Roger really gets it. And we hit on a little bit of everything across the spectrum, and I'm excited to be releasing this episode today, given some more news that I'm going to have in the near future, because we actually recorded this one a few weeks back, but it is extremely relevant given something that's happening in my life right now that I'm going to be talking about very soon. Anyway, here's my conversation with Roger, and I hope you enjoy. Roger, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Rich. And I did talk a little bit about you in the intro to the episode, but for those that are unfamiliar, have not read your book, tell the PNB family a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So, uh, recovering investment banker, uh, I run a financial planning firm called Life Laid Out. I wrote a book called Work Your Money, Not Your Life. And, uh, I work full time at Google. Now, you rattled that off quite succinctly as if you've done this before, <laughs> but. That's actually a lot because there's the day job at Google, there's being a financial advisor, then you were also writing a book. And I know that was one period in time and we'll talk more about that. But how do you how do you balance that all, especially just given everything that's going on now where I imagine people probably have a lot more questions, stuff going on in the economy. And so it's like you've got your day job, you've got an actual service-based business and then you, I know you also have a family as well. So how are you, how, how are you managing all of that right now? Well, what I would say is uh, during the pandemic, it, it's definitely been tougher. And especially with uh, a young child, it's, it's been tougher as well. I think pre-pandemic, pre, pre-child, it was much easier to uh, be deliberate about my schedule. Basically, my tactic, I think two main tactics that I used to, to balance my time before was um, put pretty much everything in my calendar, personal and professional. And my wife, Jen, gets annoyed at me sometimes about this because she'll ask me if I want to hang out with, you know, do a hangout or something. And I'll say, you got to put in the calendar or else it doesn't really exist. Uh, And so I used to um, do a lot of uh, personal or side hustle projects, uh, probably an hour, hour and a half before work, and then set aside an hour, hour and a half uh, after work, so it was kind of in the calendar, so so it, it was on there for me to do. Um, and then the other thing that I found really helpful with my schedule, which is starting to bunch similar activities together, whether it was in my job at Google or personally. And before this, 
uh, what I found was uh, I kind of let my schedule happen to me. So I'd have a 30-minute meeting at 10, 30-minute break, then another 30-minute meeting. So I'd have, and that would be my whole day. So I'd find all these 30 or 45-minute awkward time slots where I didn't really have enough time to do deep work uh, and I didn't have another meeting. So I inevitably just was surfing the web. So it was kind of wasted time. And so now I've become a little more proactive about my uh, schedule. And so I'll block off you know, two, two and a half hours at a time to do deep work. Um, and then I'll schedule all my meetings together, 30, 30, 30. Uh, so it kind of decreases the switching costs and allows me to, you know, have be more deliberate about my time. I love that you said that, particularly about the calendar, because I just had that same conversation with Bay the other day. <laughs> Where it's like, you know, I want to start doing more stuff. And I'm like, it has to get on the calendar. And it's like, oh, that's so robotic. But I'm like, I'm like, no, it 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 has to get there because that is the only way that I can manage all the things. Because you reminded me of something else too. We have a day job calendar, and and that's we. Anybody who's working right now, you probably, especially if you're working in a white collar role, you have a day job calendar. You've also got your client calendar. <laughs> You've got your 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 family calendar, and so for for me, like really, the only way to do it was just to have everything hit the calendar, and then I use Google Calendar so I can just check all the various calendars that I have and see everything overlaid. And if I don't see it on there, I like I forget it. There's a very high likelihood that I'm going to forget about it, or it's not going to get done. So that's it's pretty much the uh, same thing for me too. Totally. And someone, I think I mentioned this in, in another interview, but they said, well, isn't that really stressful if you have everything scheduled? What if you don't get to something? And I say, you know, the calendar is a goal. It's not like so rigid. Like sometimes I don't feel like working out at 8 a.m. because I'm sore. I'm just, I didn't get good sleep. So, you know, I end up not doing it. But, you know, if I get 80 or 90% done, in the calendar, I'm happy. And things inevitably move, I think, especially with COVID or with a kid. But you can at least have that intent and that goal, and it gives you some uh, path to potentially follow. What you're saying, it reminds me a lot of a word that I'm trying to get more comfortable with myself, and that word is discipline, which I'm trying to reestablish a, not I'm trying. See, that is even a difference in itself. It's not I'm trying to, I am reestablishing a morning routine. My my leadership coach actually gave that to me as uh, an assignment. And it, it's interesting because discipline is something that I had for years as an athlete and at various points in my life. But when there's not a concrete goal to be moving toward, you know, there's not a game that's coming up, there's not a test, there's not some competition, it's uh, hard to maintain that that discipline sometimes. And that could be even as simple as like when you get up in the morning. And I'll be very honest about this. I intended to get up before we talked like an additional 30 <laughs> minutes earlier, and I just couldn't do it. I just like laid there and like scrolled on, on my phone. So I'm I'm curious how 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 you think about the role of discipline. And then uh, I'm also curious, like, where's, like, what's the framework or baseline for how you develop that? You know, like, was, like, is, is there an experience or is it just innate to your personality in terms of how you've been able to d develop that for yourself? Yeah, I feel like I've always, you know, f since I was young, I was um, goal-oriented to some extent, and that might be good or bad, but I would set a goal and then kind of try to back into what I needed to do uh, to achieve that. And I think there's a balance, you know, there's maybe I was coming from that end and, um, 
pretty disciplined uh, and you might be coming from the other end. But I think what I'm trying to learn for myself is, you know, adding in that flexibility uh, or that margin for error or kind of being compassionate about yourself when, you know, you don't make the workout or you don't do something that you plan for yourself because it, you know, at the end of the day, isn't the end of the world. And I think if there's, you know, one lesson that I got from COVID, it's, you know, there's got to be some buffer in your schedule, in your life for margin of error. And that could be, you know, that could apply in a number of different facets. So, yeah, I think it's something that I've just learned. I mean, maybe it was my parents, but it's something that uh, I've been practicing and I've actually been trying to practice to be a little more flexible in my approach. Yeah. And I, I like the idea of uh, coming from two ends of the spectrum, but I think a key takeaway there is like, there isn't one right approach, right? You know, it's it, it's ultimately what's going to be best for you and uh, what's most aligned with the goals that you ultimately want to accomplish, which there's probably a whole separate conversation we could have around goal setting <laughs> yeah. in itself. <laughs> Continuing along the thread of discipline, and we're going to get into the money stuff, the book, the book writing process. I've had people ask, uh, all right, Rich, are you planning to write a book one day? And I'm like, I don't know. Maybe I see people doing it. I see it's the quick way to create additional opportunities for yourself. You say you have a book, you instantly become more credible. Now, you gave me a four-letter description of what it was like. Uh, <laughs> I don't like, remember which four-letter word I it used. Was, it was uh, PTSD was the oh, four-letter right. description that yeah. you gave me for the for the uh, book writing process. And then, of course, we know that's a serious thing, but like, I know that like, it's, it, it can be a lot to sit down and do something like that. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the actual process of writing the book? And, and actually, what made you write the book in the first place? I think a couple of things. Uh, got me interested in writing the book. I think obviously you saw other people writing books, uh, you heard about them, uh, and and they said it was a great experience. They they talk about it didn't take that much time, and I thought, well, you know, I'm writing an article once a month for Forbes or what have you. Maybe it wouldn't be a stretch for me to write a book, and so that's what got the idea uh, into my head. And I thought, hmm. This could be something cool. It's um, it sounds interesting. A lot of people have a great experience with it, uh, and it'd probably be a good good learning experience. And I think from there, the next question for me was, what unique perspective do I bring, or what what topic that isn't already covered uh, in the marketplace uh, would people potentially be interested in? And so, I then went through the process of reading a lot of other personal finance and career books. And, and what I ultimately got from that, I, you know, I wasn't convinced through that process that, oh, I, sh I should write a book. But you know, after reading a number of these finance and career books, what I found was that you know, um, finance books were really good at covering uh, the money stuff. But there was often just like a very small, maybe even like a paragraph devoted to career planning. It would talk about investments, asset allocation, and then say, "Oh, but Rich, just make sure you know your 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 career plans are in place." And it'd kind of be a throwaway. And I'd be like, "Well, well, what the heck? That's that's a complicated thing to do. You, you know, I, I don't. Who do I go for that? What book do I go to?" And then, kind of the same thing with um, career books. They're very good at talking about 
how to find a career, how to change jobs, how to change industries. And then often there would be uh, kind of a throwaway paragraph as well of, well, you got to make sure that whatever decision that you make fits within uh, your financial situation. And I would think like, what does that actually mean? And so what I got from the process was, you know, why isn't there a book that covers both your money uh, and your work? Because each of these facets of your life impact the other. Uh, and so how do you go about pursuing these two aspects of your life uh, in a balanced way? And I, and I would say that, you know, personally, I struggled with these two aspects for a, a lot of my life. And I probably did it the wrong way in terms of doing it sequentially, doing it, trying to optimize uh, maybe my career first and then moving on to my finances. But looking back, I thought it, it probably would have been much easier if I balanced, you know, optimized both at the same time. And I'm trying not to get too fired up about this, but you actually hit on a couple of the very reasons that the whole P&B thing even exists. Because I find that in money, they don't really talk about the role that work plays in that. And I'm thinking to myself, for most people, their day job is their primary source of income. That's also how they're getting into investing through their 401k in a lot of cases. Or if you work for the government, I think it's a 403b. Yeah. There we go. Got it. I've just been surprised that just uh, with, even within personal finance, and I'm curious if, if you've noticed this too. Actually, I'll ask this question first. Do you feel like personal finance has, as a topic has exploded in the past few years? Totally. Yeah. I feel like there's, you know, maybe in the 2000s, you had a couple of blogs and then you had the mainstream media covering it, whether it's CNBC, Bloomberg, but now you've got all these different blogs, podcasts, obviously. Uh, it, I feel like everywhere that I, I, I turn, there is uh, some personal finance article and that might just be because of what I'm interested in. Uh, but I, I do think it's blown up a lot. What do you think has changed? Because I know over the past few years in particular in the podcast space, I've noticed a ton of people, I've seen people pivoting into personal finance who I know are not coming from anywhere remotely close. And you don't need to be a personal finance expert to talk about personal finance. I just talk about my experience. Totally. But I just find it interesting that there's just been such an uptick over the past few years. And I'm just curious what, what your take is on that for, for why it's become so popular uh, recently. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I, uh, I think there could be a, a number of different reasons. I think maybe, you know, you had the the Great Recession back in two thousand eight. A lot of people got um, burned, and so maybe there is some aspect of you know wanting to understand finance and the markets to be able to put yourself uh, in a better situation. I think that might be one part of it. I think you know from there you might have gotten a lot of momentum and there's these a lot of uh, movements like uh, even financial conferences that might get the word out more. And then, of course, you had the FIRE movement or financial independence retire early movement, which was, you know, very, I'd say like noteworthy or like, you know, they, they have these very sexy headlines like 30-year-old uh, retired uh, you know, with so many million dollars, lives in a truck, and you know, it's it's something that you want to click on. So I think you know those types of stories get the word out as well, and might you know get people interested and think like, oh wow, like if I actually learn about my finances, I might be able to give myself a lot of life flexibility. It might actually impact my life. 
And the other thing I was thinking about, I was thinking about the uh, political climate as well. And we won't go too far down that road, but uh, where there is a lot of strife, I find there's also a lot of time for reflection and and people kind of start thinking about uh, how they can empower themselves and how they can protect themselves in the future, particularly if things look bleak. So I speculate that uh, that's played a, a bit of a role as well. And uh, I think even after, you know, this whole pandemic thing, I think over the past year, people have had a lot of time to sit, reflect, think, figure out, like, is this what I want in my life? What do I actually want out of my life? Am I happy with what I'm doing today? Am I happy with how I'm progressing generally? And people are uh, coming to some realizations about things as well. So I, I I think there's a lot there. And uh, for you listening, I'd be curious what you think. So if you have a thought on this topic, be sure to hit me up at PayBalances on Twitter, uh, on Instagram. would love to get your feedback there. And what I initially wanted to ask you about before I went down that road was yeah. the career side of things. Because So I guess similar to the question of you know, why has this become so popular, for the career side of things, I still feel like it gets left out of the conversation in the personal finance world. And I've been trying to figure out like why that is. So I understand the importance of it just like you do. And I've just been thinking like, why are those dots not getting connected between the work and the money side of things more frequently? I think one, it's it's a totally different topic. There's probably um, a, a steeper learning curve and it may not be as simple as one plus one equals two, you know, in terms of getting a job, navigate, you know, you got like networking, there might be, it's not as simple as it takes three months or four months to get a job or transition industries. I think there's a lot of different factors going into that. Whereas with personal finance, it might be a little more uh, concrete in terms of, oh, you know, the rule of thumb is save three to six months in your emergency fund. Or let me show you this compound interest chart of how much money you can have in 20 years if you average 8%. So maybe it's um, because it's a little more I guess math based uh, on the finance side and there might it might be easier to come up with a quote unquote right answer versus the career side might be a little more uh, ambiguous. Yeah, the other thing you made me just think about is the instant gratification effect. Like you can't just go out and change your job to oh for some people maybe they can do that. <laughs> for some software engineers and they can probably right. go out and and do that. But for the average person, you can't just uh, up and completely turn your career around in 24 hours, 48 hours, even a couple of weeks. I mean, you could quit your job. You could you, you could take that step. But with money, it could be like, go look at your savings account today. Find an extra $10 to tuck away. And so I, I think there is something to it being a lot more tangible. But there is also, you can kind of see the uh, the rewards of your efforts a lot faster as opposed to with a job search. We all know how slogging those can be. Even if we do well in interviews, just the process and playing the game. And, you know, now, you know, you got five, six, seven conversations. So that can be uh, incredibly challenging. And so you have this idea in the book where you talk about runway, and I know people have talked about like financial runway in different contexts, even in terms of just having an emergency fund. But you talk about this idea of runway where you're actually uh, combining the uh, finance and career side of things. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So I um, learned about this concept of financial runway 
kind of out of necessity after I was uh, unexpectedly laid off from my job uh, in finance. And so because it was unexpected, uh, I was kind of reacting to the situation and, and anxious and, you know, questions were going through my head of, you know, can I get another job? How long is it going to take? And am I going to be able to fund my living expenses uh, for that long? And so that got me to go through this not so fun, but really empowering exercise of getting my numbers straight, figuring out my net worth and getting very precise about how much I spend on a monthly and annual basis and comparing that spend level to my various asset amounts, whether it's my checking and savings account and asking myself, you know, how many months can I fund with just cash? And, you know, if need be, if the job search goes on for longer, and I have to sell some some holdings in my taxable account, how much longer can I fund? And if stuff really doesn't go as planned and I'm out for a very long time and have to raid my 401k a- account, um, how much runway does does that get me? And so, yeah, I, I definitely discovered it in a, a situation out of need, but you know, I found it calculating your runway can be really empowering, whether uh, you're in a situation like mine where you're uh, reacting and, and just lost your job and kind of trying to figure out what, what you can do, or if you're gainfully employed, it can be empowering as well to, you know, kind of go into work and say, you know, I've got 12 months of living expenses in cash. I don't necessarily need this job and it might help you react better to certain situations at work. And you mentioned getting laid off. And, and I think for a lot of people, that's part of their experience, particularly over the last year, or just not getting an opportunity or something doesn't go your way. Can, can you talk a little bit about that experience of getting laid off. I personally haven't experienced it, but I'm just, just curious, like how, was it something that you anticipated? Because sometimes you can see the writing on the wall and you know what's coming, severance, all of this good stuff, or was it was it more of a surprise to you? It was definitely a surprise. I had been uh, at the company for for six years and had actually secured a position at a another group in, in the company and uh, had that position secured for, for some time. And I think just as a result of what was going on in the, the markets at the time, that new position that I was going to move to got eliminated. And at the same time, my my current role, obviously, they they had backfilled already. So I was kind of the the odd man out there. So it was definitely uh, an unexpected situation. So what I would say is that, you know, I, I through the process, I had been trying to be proactive about getting a, a new role and, and secured one within the company. But just with what was happening, it just so happened that uh, things didn't work out. Looking back, it's it's easy to say that um, it ended up being uh, a really good experience for me just because the, the the six to seven years that I spent in finance, I didn't really have that much free time. I didn't have a lot of time to uh, reflect on did I even like this job or what was going well, what wasn't going well. It was just a grind. I was just in there from 8 a.m. to maybe midnight or later a lot of the nights. And so there's not really what we talk about buffer or margin of error to reflect and say, do I like this? What am I even doing here? Or what do I want to do? And so I think that the unexpected layoff gave me that time for the first time since college to think about what I really wanted uh, from my career and knowing my numbers, how much I needed to fund my lifestyle and what uh, and what I wanted my life to look like. And I think that 
graduating college, I don't think I thought about that, what do I want my life to look like? I thought about, I think that there's two career paths I can do, consulting and investment banking, because that's what everyone else is doing. I didn't think about, well, what are the trade-offs that I have to make to be in this career, whether it's traveling four days a week, you know, working 12 to 15 hours a day and always being on call. You, you know, you don't, I guess when you're younger, you don't, or at least for me, I didn't think about, you know, what are the trade-offs involved in going down that particular path? The trade-offs definitely weren't there when I was out of school. I mean, it was a different set of trade-offs that I was thinking about. It's like, is it bottles? Is it bottle service? Or is it yeah. like, it was, it was a completely different, <laughs> different type of trade-off versus now, but, but that's super important. And so at the point that you really started thinking about this. Were you, what, 26, 27? Closer to 30. Closer yep. to 30. <laughs> okay. Actually, that makes it even more poignant because uh, I think for those folks who are overambitious and super achievers, and I've talked about this a lot in the podcast, and I say that I talked about it a lot on the on the podcast, is this, I'm, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I'm not, you know, fully fulfilled. I thought I would be somewhere different, but a lot of times you don't actually know, like it's, it's going to take you a few years to figure out like where it is you actually want to be. Because I found that for every job that I thought was a dream job, once you got into that role and you learned it, it was just like any other job, you know, and it wasn't like I'd reached the pinnacle of my career with each job. There was all, there's always something more. And I think that's probably the case uh, for a lot of people who are, who are like us, who are striving to, to achieve in our careers. So how do you kind of like balance that where you're, you're, you're coming up and, and you're doing well, you know, but you feel like you're supposed to be somewhere else, but like, maybe not, you know? I'll try to tackle that from a couple of different angles. I, I think that when I was going through the job search after, after being laid off, I, you know, was trying to find the one, you know, what is this one dream job that is going to fulfill my financial needs be intellectually stimulating and, you know, be in a place that is a, a good environment to work in where I like my coworkers. And I was trying to, you know, put so much pressure on one particular job. And I think what I learned from the process is that there is no, there, there is no such thing as, as a dream job. I think, you know, similar to personal finance where you're budgeting and you're trying to get a sense of, you know, what are what are the priorities or need-to-haves for me and what are the nice-to-haves? I think it's the same thing um, in a job. What are the need-to-haves? What are the non-negotiables in a job? And what are the things that are not as important? Because, you know, just like with spending, it, it, it's probably not a fair assumption that you're going to get everything uh, in this one job. And so I think that what could be helpful and, and why I do a lot of uh, side hustles is because it allows me to um, satisfy that creative outlet or entrepreneurial instinct. You know, when I was looking for a job, I thought it was binary. I either had to be in a, let's say, finance job to make a healthy salary but be miserable, or uh, maybe be a, a startup founder but maybe not be able to put food on, on the table. And it doesn't necessarily have to be an either or. It could be both. You can work in a job that funds your expenses. And at the same time, you can pursue things uh, outside of that job to satisfy maybe some of those needs that aren't being satisfied in your job. And, and that's okay. As far as even on the financial consulting or 
financial advising for folks. I'm kind of curious, like what you've been seeing, and actually, who do you who do you primarily work with? Who's your primary kind of target client that you work with? Yeah, so mostly people, I'd say, in late twenties, thirties, and early forties, and it's typically people that are recently engaged, married, or planning to have uh, a baby or um, planning to buy a house. There's some thing, there's some event that is getting them to think, oh, maybe we should be a little more deliberate about our finances. And so from a uh, marriage standpoint, you have two people that were managing their money separately for a long time. And so I think a financial planning engagement allows them to get on the same page. And often it's not just me spewing out, oh, you should do X, Y, Z. It's it's asking them questions about how they want to you know, manage their money together. What are the goals uh, that they want to achieve? And you know, the other thing I like about uh, this particular clientele, um, well, they're, tax, they're tech savvy. Uh, a lot of them are good at doing it yourself. And so we'll do an hourly engagement and then they'll be able to implement themselves and, and go on their way. But also I, I find it as more of a proactive rather than a reactive engagement. Someone in their 50s and 60s, they've cobbled together a lot of different accounts. They might be good, they might not be good, or investments. Someone in their late 20s or early 30s, they have more of a blank slate and they're open to uh, some of the ideas that you might impart on them with respect to investing uh, or even being more deliberate about your living expenses. And so I, I like that aspect of you know the blank slate proactiveness. Someone in their 60s, they've been in the workforce, they're, they're accustomed to some level of thinking. Uh, it's tough to say, You've really kind of cut down forty thousand from your budget. Yeah, <laughs> You're like I can't do it. I, I can't do it. <laughs> that is a hefty number. No, that's like living expenses. That's like rent for like a year. Or, yeah, sorry, or more that, that, that was just a, a random example. But even if you said, you know, you have to cut, you know, five thousand from your expenses, they might say, you know, I, I can't really be bothered with that. I, you know, this is something I be I've grown accustomed to. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious from the folks that you've worked with, what's, and you may have answered this already, what are people asking about most right now? Are you seeing any trends between, or in terms of what you're hearing across clients or folks that you're having introductory chats with? I think with respect to the couples, a lot of the time it's, it's um, should we be managing our money together? Should we be, it's, should we have it separately? Should we have everything joint? The other question I get a lot is, you know, should we buy a home now? How much home can we uh, buy? You know, um, or how do we plan for having a baby? What are all the expenses uh, that involve? And I, and I think the thing that is common around all the different situations at the end of the day is people are trying to make sense of, we've got these pots of money and then we have uh, a lot of different competing goals. How do we make sense of how to allocate that pot of money to all these different types of goals in terms of prioritizing them and then the timing of them? Yeah, the uh, goal setting, and you'll notice that's a, a theme here, is like the most fundamental part of it. I think even before that, it's understanding your values and understanding like what your belief system is. And that doesn't necessarily mean religious because there are things that I've said were important, but when I look at how I actually spent my money, those things didn't seem like they were so important. And I, and what I've uh, realized is that 
Sometimes there are uh, values. So for, so like even for self, like competition is a big thing for me. And it took me a while to be able to accept like that being able to compete and uh, and being able to win, like there's nothing wrong with that. That's the way athletes are. That's the way athletes like work. And when I'm making investments in self so that I can compete, those are like investment, more investments in like health, fitness, things like that versus uh, maybe like more of the of the fast food and and, and so on. I think it's really crucial uh, for for people to kind of do that exercise of like what it, like what is actually important to me and looking at looking at their spending and seeing if their spending even matches what they're actually saying. Yeah, no, I I, I totally agree. Everything starts with them, and I think oftentimes you know whether I'm doing a a presentation or working with clients uh, individually. I often think it comes, you know, a lot of the questions come based on what's happening externally in the market. They say, uh, Roger, uh, should I, is now a good time to buy a home because interest rates are at all time lows? Or, you know, what should I do with my investment portfolio because uh, the market just tanked or the market's going up or inflation is doing XYZ? And that's a very reactive uh, and stressful way to be managing your investment portfolio. And so to your point, um, I often say, you know, instead of worrying about what's going on in the outside market, start with your internal needs and go back to, you know, what are your financial goals? What's important to you? How much do those cost in total? And then what does that mean in terms of what present you has to do on a monthly basis to save? And based on the timeline of those goals, start to uh, align that with some mix of stocks and bonds for, for each of those goals. And then think about, think about implementation. And I always say that you know, when you're implementing, you're trying to balance uh, simplicity uh, and efficiency. Yeah, and I'm kind of learning that the hard way right now with uh, actively investing in the market or actively trading. Uh, I have a a taxable investment account with Wealthfront, which uh, I know there's a, a benefit that, that we get through work for that. And then uh, I've got my 401k. I've done my my Roth thing. Uh, I took my per- my performance bonus and did the painful thing earlier this year and just like fully applied that to my 401k. <laughs> nice. So that I could get into after-tax contributions as uh, as quickly as possible. Are there other moves or recommended moves that uh, that you think people should be making, particularly on on the investing front? And I'm not talking about investing in specific stocks. Yeah, I just mean even in terms of like how folks are learning the market right now. So for me, I just set aside some money and said, you know what, I'm going to fumble. I might lose all of this. I might make a little bit, but this this is money that I'm expecting to be gone. And uh, even in terms of like determining sectors, even how I thought about investing a couple of months ago when I when I first started in March is completely different from how I think about it today. Where it's like, you know what, I'm going to go with companies that I like that they've you know there you know I look at this the RSI or, or whatever the acronym is. I'm going to look at this, and now that I've gotten my feet under me a little bit more, I feel completely different about the investing world, even with what's been happening in the uh, in the market lately. So are, is there any kind of, I guess, general tips or guidance for someone who's like, I got a little bit of money. I've got these long-term investments taken care of. I want to start playing around in, in the market a little bit. Like, how can I kind of start warming myself up to being able to do that? So you're talking about the the active investing. And so 
I'll be honest, I am a, a big proponent of the the passive investing. And so, for, you know, and it's because that I think active investing um, is very tough to do, choosing what to buy and when to buy it uh, and when, when to sell it is tough to consistently do uh, and beat the market. And I think there's been studies on this. There's this S&P Dow Jones that does um, the study every year that compares just even actively managed funds versus passively managed funds. And the S&P 500, which tracks large cap funds, they found that over a one-year period, uh, one period of time, the S&P 500, this passive index, outperformed 65% of actively managed funds over a one-year period. Over a 15-year period, the S&P 500 outperformed, I think it was 90 to 95% of actively managed funds. So it's extremely difficult uh, to do. And so what I would advise is to have people focus on, you know, if, if they do agree with me and ascribe to a passive investment strategy, it is to focus on those things that you can control. And I, I don't think that you can control the market, but what I can't, what you can control is what you invest in, where you put those investments, and how much you pay to invest. What you invest in is kind of what we were talking about before in terms of figuring out your goals and letting that influence you know, the appropriate mix of stocks and bonds. So what you invest in will highly be influenced by what you're investing for. Where to put each investment, that's where we talk about, you know, are you maximizing all the different tax advantage buckets that you have available, whether it's a pre-tax or Roth 401k, if you have a 401k that allows it doing after-tax monies to convert that uh, to Roth, sometimes called the mega backdoor Roth. And, and then outside of that, are you investing either in a traditional IRA or, or Roth IRA? And then if you still have extra money left over, you've got the taxable brokerage account as a separate bucket. Uh, or potentially some people use this HSA as a stealth retirement account. And so from a bucket standpoint, when people say like pre-tax Roth or taxable, I like to recommend having a mix of money in each of those buckets. And I think that gives future you more flexibility uh, to be able to control your tax bracket. For a pre-tax 401k, you put all your money in there, and let's say you have $100,000 of living expenses. You have to take $100,000 out each year at retirement. Your income for tax purposes is 100000 But let's say you have 50% in pre-tax and 50% in Roth. Well, you still have $100,000 of living expenses. You can take 50 from your pre-tax and 50 from your Roth, and your income for tax purposes is now 50000 versus 100000 So I, I think you know, pre-tax and Roth being deliberate about when you do that, depending on your, your income levels or your tax rates, uh, is important. But I think it's also important to uh, have money in each of those buckets to give future you flexibility to control your tax bracket. And I think the last point is being mindful of how much that you pay to invest. And that's looking at uh, the underlying expense ratios on your mutual funds or ETFs, any administrative fees that you have to pay, or even commissions or fees that you pay to uh, buy and sell stocks? Admittedly, I don't think I'm as great at paying attention to some of those fees. Like I notice a high one. Like if I see like, oh, X basis points or whatever, I'll be like, oh, like that's not great. But generally, because 
the places where I'm probably more actively paying attention to it, with the exception of my 401k. Like I just, it's it's not like a large enough amount in fees for me for me to be concerned yet. But <laughs> I know that as our income grows, those fees do grow. And that's when people uh, start, it feels like that, that's when people start becoming a bit more concerned versus when it's like, oh, it's like, you know, less than 1%. But it's like, that can actually start to add up over time. That compounds as well for the advantage of whoever you're doing the business with, you know? Totally. And I think that, you know, you've got, you know, let's say you have a small amount in a taxable account and you're paying 1% or something fine. It's not that big of a deal now. But I think, let's say five to 10 years later, that investment grows. Fine, you've paid the 1% for all those years. But then let's say that you're like, I don't think I want this investment anymore. It doesn't really fit with my uh, asset allocation or align with what I want to invest in. When you go to sell, you're going to have to pay uh, probably a lot of capital gains to be able to move that money into another investment. And so I think that's another reason to, um, especially if you're, you know, if you're just investing in a 401k or IRA, you have a little more flexibility to maybe go into a target date fund now and change your strategy later because there won't be immediate tax uh, consequences. But in a taxable brokerage account, um, I think it's it's good to think about that strategy, be more deliberate about it, because if you do want to change it up, uh, there will be you know tax consequences in the form of capital gains if your investment uh, went up. You just reminded me of something else from the various fumbles that I've personally made. So when I got to uh, Google, it was the first time I had even heard of RSUs, like, to be quite honest with you. And that was what I was 30, 30 something, I don't want to say, 31. <laughs> no, I was still functional then. And I, I came across RSUs and you can imagine like, wait, I get stuck. Like, wait, it vests? Oh, I can't wait till <laughs> a quarter from now so I can cash that money out. What I didn't really think about for years was like the capital get like the short term capital gains versus long term capital gains, and just like the cashing out and some of the stuff that I was doing. I'm like, it's especially today, like looking back at that because 2020 was the first year where I didn't have any RSU transactions, and that had in turn had an impact on my taxes, a very positive impact compared to the uh, year previous. So I'm, I'm really glad that you called that out. And uh, do you have like a quick summary that like you give people when it comes to talking about like short-term capital gain versus long-term capital gain, just like a quick framework if someone hasn't really been thinking about that? Yeah. So basically anything that you hold for a year or less is taxed at short-term capital gains, which is basically your marginal tax rate, whether it's 22, 24, uh, 32, 37%. Uh, if you hold uh, uh, an investment for a year and a day or longer, it's that gain that you had on that investment is subject to long-term capital gains. So those rates are lower than your marginal tax rate, typically uh, 15 to 20%. And these are all of the things that the wealthy have been doing to become wealthy that those of us who are establishing wealth are starting to do now. So we are at that point in the show, Roger. It's been fantastic having you on the podcast. I know there were like a few other things that uh, that that we wanted to talk about, and I definitely encourage folks to go out, cop the book because you really do. I, as I was listening to it, and you also narrate the audio version. I think it's important people know that too. <laughs> I was that like, was also not easy. 
<laughs> Actually, that is, I can't believe I didn't ask about that because it was like one of my first thoughts when I was listening is I wonder what this whole process was like. Yeah, it's sitting in a small room uh, for eight to nine hours and, you know, it's it's dimly lit. You have a, a, a light uh, above you and you're just reading and someone is editing or listening while you're reading and probably stopping you especially me in the beginning, every couple of lines to say, uh, no, you didn't pronounce that right. Or this person's name is actually pronounced X, Y, Z. So, you know, let's do it again and try to do it in the same tone <laughs> as you've been reading before. And so it took me a while to, I think, get the pacing uh, and the tone right. And, and you know, obviously it, it, it's tough to just sit in one place. So you're like standing up every once in a while, taking a bathroom break or getting water. I was insistent on wa wanting to, to read the book. And then after the fact, I was like, oh, wow, I, I now appreciate all those people that uh, all the authors that I hear that do read it because it's it's not an easy or comfortable process. Maybe it feels like you're like on a plane or something. It's it's it's, it's a tight space. How long did it take? Yeah, I think it was two days, seven hours each day. Nah, that's not working for me. I'm sorry. I'm not. <laughs> that's too much. Yeah, yeah. So I was definitely in my my sweats, and you know, you get a lunch break, but you're still like, oh, I don't know. Am I am I in the headspace to do this again? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's taxing. No, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad it's my voice, but. Again, you don't think about these things when you're like, I want to read my own book of, you know, what are the logistics, like, what's the setup going to be? Yeah. I just imagine being in a room, just like sweating the hot light, someone behind a glass, like waving at me as I'm, as I'm in front of this microphone uh, and it taking a lot longer, uh, two days, seven hours. I, I kind of like that too, because you can just kind of get it done real quick as, as opposed to stretching it out over weeks. But I would still prefer to stretch it out over weeks. Yeah. Yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, uh, so, so, Roger, it's been awesome having you on the podcast. The book is Work Your Money, Not Your Life. And uh, it is a great way to get a, a foundation on uh, the intersection of work and money and how you can progress professionally, financially. And I'd even say personally, because typically if you're managing money well, if you're taking care of your mental health and so on, and you're also thriving professionally, uh, you're going to typically be in a pretty good spot or at least uh, hopefully have more mental capacity to enjoy life and also find freedom. So tell people where they can find you around the web. I know I just shouted out the book, but if there's uh, anything else that, that people should know. My financial planning website is lifelaidout.com. The book website is workyourmoneybook.com. And you can find me on Twitter at lifelaidout, though I don't really tweet that much. This has been a lot of fun. And uh, now we're going to transition to uh, our day jobs. <laughs> Great. Sounds good. <laughs> Thanks again to Roger for coming on the podcast. I hope you got a lot out of this one. Also, it was interesting to hear how similar his answer was to Tori Dunlap's on last week's episode when I asked about the state of personal finance and the role that 2008 played in that. And I also love that he stuck to his guidance on not promoting active trading and gave clear reasons why he's a long-term passive investor. And there are so many other things I appreciated about this episode, but that's definitely one of them. And if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share with your network and subscribe or follow on your favorite pod player if you haven't already. And another reminder to drop by the Paychecks and Balances blog to check out the weekly articles from our team of writers. Thanks for listening. And until next time, do something dope. Because I know damn sure I'm about to. <laughs>